across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. The food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, bringing you food and drink news and features from the city and South Cambridgeshire with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. And we're here live in the studio at Gwider Street armed with a plate full of features, including a local tandoori that recently won an International MasterChef Award. With the promise of a mini heatwave on the way, Tim Haywood tells us why quality charcoal is important for your barbecue. We journey to the King Street of 1588 to see what hearty food you could get in the pub where the King Street run now stands. And we'll have plenty of food and drink news and news of local job opportunities in the food industry too. And if you're listening to our live Saturday show, then you may know that Ramadan ended yesterday, a month of fasting in the Islamic calendar. And today marks Eid, the breaking of the fast. Here's Shahida Rahman, a voice familiar to flavour, to tell us more about what it means and what it's like. Shahida, can you tell me something about what Ramadan is, is about? So Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. It's a month when Muslims fast all over the world, so we don't eat food from sunrise to sunset. Um, literally no food, no water as well. Uh, and it's a time of spirituality, people coming together and self-focusing really, making ourselves better um, and being a better person all, all round. So there's a lot of things that we do sort of focus on during the month of Ramadan. And the, the, tell me about the fasting, which I suppose at some times of year when the daylight is, is lengthy can be quite difficult for people? I think the first couple of days is probably a shock to the system, um, but we do get used to it and it really depends on what you have in the morning, what you eat. It's about healthy eating as well. Also when you break the fast uh, in the evening. Uh, so I think, yes, you know, we do feel hungry from time to time, but for us it's focusing on who we are, you know, making ourselves better, and it's feeling hungry is a spirituality for us. Um, but yes, you know, you do get used to it as the month goes along. What sort of thing makes a good breakfast then, just to see through the day? We wake up about one hour before sunrise, and we can eat almost anything, but no one really feels hungry. It's the sake of eating, you know, just to get some food down here in the morning. Uh, but I think generally breakfast like porridge or, you know, juices or um, that's what I would have normally in the morning, um, milk, you know, some fruit as well. Some people will go for the will out uh, dinner, maybe leftovers from the night before. Um, but it really depends, you know, what you do have. It should be high protein, as I said, you know, healthy. And slow-burning food as well, where, for instance, Weetabix, um, which my children do have, and it makes them feel less hungry during the day. So it's just to give you that energy, just yeah, to get through so, But day. not the quick sugar burst that a lot of cereals no, are. Uh, absolutely, and that can make you feel hungry maybe six hours into the fast so it's advisable you know don't have heavy sugary foods um, and it's also people can also overeat uh, during the month of Ramadan <laughs> especially uh, uh, in the evening time so it's really important to watch yes. what, uh, so they're, they're sort of playing safe and <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and, and and in the evening the meal uh, the same applies of high protein Low, low sugar perhaps yes uh, that's right but um, it's very easy to overeat um, just before iftar the evening meal we're always thinking about what we're going to eat uh, what we're going to cook but when it comes down to having that meal um, I think our, our eyes are literally just telling us to eat more but 
simply we can't eat too much, um, especially when we're about three or four weeks into Ramadan. Our, our, our stomach shrinks, so we're eating less, but we get used to it. So it's uh, the, the danger is. You know, overeating, we shouldn't overeat because we do need to do our evening prayers and make sure that we're feeling light and um, well in ourselves. Yes, and at the end of Ramadan, the festival of Eid, when you can start eating again in the daylight hours, what's what's that like? Is that uh, to overdo it then? It, it, it's easy to overdo. Um, I think also we're not having that early morning meal as well, so we're having breakfast a little bit later. Uh, but Eid is a day where we share different kind of foods, uh, family come over, friends come over. Uh, it's a wonderful social time. We come to the mosque for our, uh, Eid prayers as well. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, it's just nice to be able to eat something different and it feels odd, you know, suddenly eating during the day when we haven't been eating during the day for, for a whole month. So what sort of foods are, are eaten? Is it foods that have a symbolic relevance or is it simply people eat what, like Christians do at Easter, they just eat what they really like to eat? Yes, and it depends what country they come from, so they will eat their own traditional food. Uh, for myself, I'm Bangladeshi origin, so I would cook South Asian food. And uh, it's something also we prepare for before Eid. You know, we like to get our sweets and pastries uh, ready, frozen, and then all we need to do is get them out on Eid day. And that's the same at the beginning of Ramadan, just before Ramadan starts. We prep a lot of food where we can actually freeze them, and then it's easier to cook when uh, uh, dinner time comes. It just saves a lot of time and effort. So on Eid day, I like to get up really early, make sure breakfast is ready for the family before we um, go off for prayers. We cook uh, sweet doughnuts. Um, it's fried in oil. It's something that my mother's been cooking for many, many years. Um, it's made with flour and sugar, date molasses as well. And when she makes it, it really sort of puffs up into a nice... Um, uh, ball, but when I make that myself, it's almost flat. It's very difficult <laughs> to get that texture. Um, but that's, uh, I think, in my household for many, many years, that's been a key theme of Eid um, because my mother's made that for many, many years. We've had it since we were little, and I'm feeding my children as well the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, lots of different kind of foods, samosas, pastries. You know, it, there's just a huge variety. Yeah, and what things like biryanis, the sort of... Yes, that, that's special for us as well, you know, our curries. But e even though, you know, we are... It's a day that we can eat, we don't eat too much, you know. It's, uh, it's in moderation, I would say, because we simply don't feel really hungry because we have been fasting for a month. Yes, how extraordinary. Right, so people lose weight then. Yes, I would yeah, say, yeah. Uh, myself, uh, yes. And I think it's a good time where we cut out the snacks, things yeah. that we shouldn't be eating, um, and we can do without it. So I think with Ramadan, that really teaches us that, yes, you know, we, we don't need to be snacking, we can do without that. Uh, but yes, it's a good time to start losing weight. Right, so sorry, some really good benefits then. Shahida, thank you very much. Thank you. To wish someone well at Eid, you say Eid Mubarak. I was reading an article about a young person's experience of Eid and how it felt to break that fast at the end of the month. He mentioned, you know, relatives getting together, uh, acts of charity and service. But one thing he said was, the best part of the day is definitely the food. It is amazing. And it made me think, I don't think I've ever really fasted in my life. Have you, Alan, Sue? No, not really, no. <laughs> Having very late sort of lunches, but <laughs> not <laughs> fasting per se, no. Mm. Well, I suppose like most people, there have been periods when I've not been well, so I haven't eaten for True. a while. And I remember actually once having not eaten for a few days, starting to feel well again. I had some lentil soup. There was nothing special about it, but it tasted absolutely wonderful. It was <laughs> Excellent. a joy to eat. Well, I love lentil soup anyway, <laughs> oh, <do> so <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> but I think it wouldn't normally bring about the ecstasy it brought Fair in enough. either. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been good soup. <laughs> but I think one, one thing that Shahid has also mentioned was that being hungry, of course, is terribly distracting it's all you can mm. think of so one way that people who are fasting try and avoid that is by just keeping very busy 
so you're keeping your mind off your hunger. Mm. But mm. it's it's an extraordinary thing to be able to do. It shows how flexible human beings yeah, are. And strength of will. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Also yeah. addiction too. I've got a new housemate. He's Indian. And he weaned himself off all sugars. And it made me realize just how many sweet things I eat. Mm-hmm. Now to him, he wouldn't touch what I eat because he said the, the taste is so strong it's off-putting to mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't eat a chocolate bar, for instance. Yeah. Whereas I wouldn't think anything of it. Yeah, Yeah. I find that actually as well because I haven't had sugar in tea for ages and if I have even sort of half a teaspoon, it tastes so sweet. Mm, Same mm. with semi-skim milk and and normal milk. Uh, It it tastes incredibly rich if I have full-fat milk now. Yeah. Yes, I suppose so. (laughs) Yeah. You can get used to anything. You'll train your body. (laughs) (laughs) So, speaking of food... Now details of free food available in and around Cambridge and the information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. That's right. And today's look at Olio for Cambridge shows us that Russell on Hobart Road has a six-pack of hot cross buns, a Tesco cheese bloomer, six hot dog rolls and four large wholemeal baps to give away. Ualina on Gilbert Road has a carton of coconut milk available... Leanne on Brooklyn's Avenue is offering potatoes, specifically two bags of Albert Bartlett's, two British mashing bags and one packet of baby potatoes. Meanwhile, Nick in Arbury has a four-pinter of semi-skim milk, unopened and in date until the 26th, as well as a tin of Spam, a chocolate rabbit, a tin of sardines, two packets of strawberry pencil sweets and a tin of peach slices. He always seems to have a strange mix of items, does Nick, but he's very prolific at the weekends on Olio giveaways. And that was a snifter of some of the items that are currently available on Olio in Cambridge today. And there is another free app that's called Too Good To Go, which has unsold food from restaurants and shops, and they're often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag and it's ready for you to take home. And that is instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. On to our first news break now for Saturday 22nd of April. Next weekend's Sweet Pea Market Garden in Caxton has a gathering and work party. There'll be broad forking, wheelbarrowing compost, sowing seeds and planting. The times are from 10 until 5 on both Saturday and Sunday and on the Saturday at 6pm you can barbecue any food you've taken along. There is parking on site or you can get the X3 bus. Overnight camping is welcomed. More details are on the Sweet Pea Market Garden website in the calendar section. Let Adrienne know in advance if you're able to go. And good news if you're raring to get involved in something earthy this weekend. There's a workshop tomorrow, Sunday, in the afternoon, and that's also at Sweet Pea Market Garden. It involves pricking out and planting seedlings. Tea and coffee will be provided, and children are welcome. Contact via Instagram if you're planning on going. Transition Cambridge is having a good-to-grow weekend and is running a session on resilient gardening in a changing climate and that's at the Empty Common Community Garden tomorrow. That's Sunday from 2 till 4pm. Now you'll learn techniques to successfully grow crops that thrive in a changing climate. This is for everyone, irrespective of age or experience. And we went to visit the garden just a few years ago and here is a brief extract to give you a flavour of what it's like. Yes, there's Hobson's Conduit on one side, Vickers Brook on the other side. Mm. We're surrounded by water and trees. Yes. What could be better in the middle of Cambridge? <laughs> you wouldn't really know it was the middle of Cambridge, would you? No, you wouldn't. No. I mean, aside from... Apart from the odd plane, yeah, no control over those things. <laughs> it's not only a garden, it's a community garden. That is the most important thing about it. And it's full of people who all do different things. All this can go, yeah? No, these must stay. What are these? You know, someone really likes sowing seeds, someone really likes digging. It makes the whole thing work better than it would as an individual. I mean, the sum is greater than... The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we have a huge number of people of different abilities. Yes, that's what yeah. works. Come and join. We're doing a radio thing 
Oh, the dog wants to sing a song. Hello, you. Oh, you're gorgeous. She's really good with the community radio. Is she? She, is. she plays all sorts of instruments. Oh, <laughs> and songs she sings is extraordinary. There we are. Not bad oh, for a dog. What a beautiful dog. So Ian was instrumental in getting this garden going. Oh, well, I know. I was just one of the individuals in, yes. that encouraged the city council to uh, provide space for the community to work collaboratively. Well, I think even the city council officers have been amazed by how well it's gone. I mean, this was just a sea of mud yeah. five years ago. You'll never grow in that area. Mm. It's waterlogged. And it's lovely now. It's a proper place, yeah. yeah. I went up to my knees. Oh, wow. What? Well, yeah, when I was measuring it out. And they brought oh. a digger in, and the digger just went down. And they had to get another <laughs> digger in to get the digger out. <laughs> you know, the group with Charlotte's supervision has persevered and it's mm. uh, gone from strength to strength. In fact, the council have given us more space. Yeah. Yes. And, and more members show up from two-year-olds through to 82-year-olds, young at heart. It's really good. <laughs> and this is Francis. I, I've been meaning to come to here for a couple of weeks. Of course, you miss, meet the, wonder, the most wonderful people here and then it uh, makes it super easy. Have you done anything like this before? Yeah, yeah. I used to live up in Scotland. For a while, I was quite involved in a community garden up there. Um, mm. So I've really been looking for another garden to get involved with. There's, there's definitely a joy to both the, the community part and the gardening part, yeah. So we're Empty Common Community Garden on the corner of Brooklands Avenue and Trumpington Road, just opposite the Botanic Gardens. Um, there's a sort of grassy area there and then there's allotments and we're right at the far end of that. It's a beautiful place. Well, over in Congratulations Corner today, there are four winners of Cambridge Sustainable Food Sustainable Food Awards. They're Maison Clement, Thrive, Millworks and the Cambridge Chop House. So, well done to them. Congratulations too to local chef Rosie Sykes, who gets a nice write-up in Cambridge Sustainable Foods' current newsletter, thanking her for her work for them. That includes preparing thousands of meals for distribution to households and saving tons of food from unnecessarily going to waste too. Now tomorrow is Gransden's Farmers Market with 14 food and drink stalls and also plant, herb and other stalls. It takes place in Little Gransden Village Hall where there's free parking and the market will be there from 9am till 1pm. Other markets coming up, on the 7th of May, the Cottenham Community Market from 9.30 till 12.30. The 13th of May, the Cambridge Farmers Market at the Marley Development in Newmarket Road from 9 till 1. Histon Farmers Market on the 20th of May at Histon Methodist Church from 9 till 12. And Hawkston Food and Craft Market in the Hawkston Centre on the 21st of May from 10 till 2. The profusion of farmers' markets is not just a Cambridgeshire phenomenon. There's an article in today's Financial Times about it, although it's a bit more of a London-centric one. And looking a little further ahead, Flourish at Hildesham has a summer market on 10th of June from 10 till 4. There'll be more than 20 stalls covering food, drink and lifestyle. Stalls include Meadows, the Linton Kitchen, Saffron Fish Company and there'll be a Flourish barbecue, as well as coffee and baked treats to consume. Entry and parking are both free. That's all the news for now. More later in the programme. OK. Now, the Taj Tandoori is a curry house on Cherry Hinton Road. It's been there since 1986, and recently its chef, Jalal Syed, won an international award for his cooking. I went to meet Jalal to find out a little about his restaurant and his winning dish. I was born on Mill Road Hospital, the old Rosie, I think, on Ditchburn Place in Mill Road. And across the road, my dad had already opened an Indian restaurant, the Curry Queen, which is one of the oldest in Cambridge. And I was born living on top of a curry house. Back in the 70s, Jalal's dad was the first person to bring a tandoori oven to Cambridge. I asked him what the difference is between a normal oven and a tandoori oven. So a tandoori oven is basically like you've got a cement clay on the inside and it, and it gets hardened and it's like a big cube with a hole in the middle and the fire comes from inside and you get like really high temperatures so then you can barbecue the food and you, you've got charcoal ovens and now you've got some gas-fired ones but yeah and then you put everything on skewers and then on the side where the cement clay is that's where you can bake all the naans as well so you've got this oven where it's quite a skill to be able to make these naans because you've got to stick your hand into something that's like you're talking like two, three hundred degrees of temperature where you've got to slap your hand into the side and put the naan in and then take them out and stuff. So, And it also does all the skewers of the barbecue, whether it's your sheet kebabs or your chicken tikka, your tandoori chickens, yeah. 
Jalal's family have been running restaurants for decades. Do you remember how different Cambridge looked in the 80s and 90s? You don't see any of the buildings that you've got here now. I remember the junction and then there was just nothing there. It was just an open field. It was still busy as hell, even them days, I remember, because you only had a few restaurants in place. So, you know, we were next door to the Rathmore Club. So at 11 o'clock, the last orders would come in and then you'd get, have a whole load of drunks coming in. And, you know, all of them things have gone. It was a completely different culture, the, the curry and the beer and all that. It was, it was mad. I remember us as kids, we were coming here and then we were like, <laughs> I shouldn't really say this, but we used to get a curry and take it to the junction, give it to the bouncers and get free entry into the clubs and stuff, you know, we were, and then, you know, like, it's always been a part of our lives and stuff. And Over the last six or seven years, Jalal and his team have liked to experiment with traditional dishes as well as fusion foods, combining tastes of different countries. It's what gives their restaurant their USP. Yeah, it's, it's experimental and it's authentic. So there are some dishes that are just like... My mum gave me the recipe for the railway mutton that we've got, which is on the bone. This is a recipe that is as authentic as it gets for us. This is what I grew up eating with the lamb dish. But then, but then like, the pulled chicken tikka burger is, like, the, something that's... We've got a lamb rogan shepherd's pie. Again, it's something that was uh, a bit different, a bit fusion. And then there's the noodles, but then, then there's the butter chicken. There's some regional dishes that we've had in there that that we love and I think we try and get put things on there that we really enjoy ourselves as well like eating and I think if we know we're foodies if you if you could see me you'd, you'd understand what sort of foodie I am I've got. but like uh, they say never trust a skinny chef so yeah so our food is very much that it's, and, it, and it is the influences that we've had in our lives that comes out on the plate I think that's the only way for us to be and, and I feel like we're being as honest as we can with our food that way as well. Jalal went to university to get a computer science degree. He wasn't really considering food as a career, but in 2004, he returned home. What happened, like, my dad had taken a step back and I realised when I came here, I did a few shifts and I went to uni, my parents provided our whole lives, we never wanted for anything. And then when I came here, I saw how hard it was to actually turn a profit from a restaurant. This is something our dad had never told us. If I wanted a pair of Nike Air Max, he'd buy it for me, but I'd never really understood how hard it was to earn that money. And then coming back from uni, you know, you get to an age where you're like, right, I need to make money, I need to establish myself. And I realised how hard it was. It, it was like, I want to come here and some fresh blood into the place. And, and as I went in, like, my dad was like, get in the kitchen. If you're, if you're serious about here and you don't want to move on with your computer science degree in that field, then get your bum in the kitchen and really learn that that's the only way you're really going to learn the business. And, and when I went in there, and, and the fact that it was our family business, I had the love for it. And then, I don't know, it was like I just loved every aspect of it. I did everything, and it just went on. And then, like, 19 years on, I'm here still. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm just, me and my brother, we're running it. It's all still a very much a family business. And now that Mum and Dad are gone, their memories are here. We've got started the Dolly Foundation from here, which 2.5% of the turnover from this goes into the foundation that we can use to do things locally to help people who are struggling. You know, I couldn't be more grateful for what I have. And it's all because of this place, all because of what Mum and Dad initially built. And no, I wouldn't change it for the world, honestly. It was an Instagram post that brought me to the Taj Tandoori on Cherry Hinson Road that Jalal had won the International Bangladeshi MasterChef. <laughs> yeah. It was the icing of a crazy journey. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, I lost my parents in the last 18 months. Like, I needed to go to Bangladesh. There's a lot of things my parents had over there that we needed to see. So after 30 years, I went back to Bangladesh. And in between that, we'd had this competition in Northampton, International Bangladeshi MasterChef thing, and I'd put through a dish. And I was one of five finalists that then got the opportunity to go to Bangladesh to cook in the finals there against other chefs from all over Bangladesh. And this was like my second trip. So I'd been for the first time in 30 years, then I came back for two weeks, and then I went back specifically for this tournament. I wanted to basically put that experience onto a plate of food for this finals. Also, when I won it, there was like a award ceremony, there were loads of like press there, I was being interviewed, there were people taking photos. It was so surreal, honestly, it was crazy, but it was more like I got a chance to really like show 
Bangladesh on my plate. Like the, the dish that I'd done, it was basically fish and chips, but it was done in such a way that it was all sort of celebrating Bangladesh independence. And the, the name of the dish was called Independence in Bengali. It's Shadinota, which basically means independence. And, it, and March 26th is the Independence Day in Bangladesh. And I was there probably a couple of weeks before that doing the competition. So I did it with a fusion fish and chips, which is basically what I do anyway yeah, with my food. And it went down so well. The judges loved it, the presentation the taste, everything. Basically, the dish was on a canvas, like a, a canvas that you do a painting on. So, you know, like, food is art. So yeah, it was yeah. kind of like that. So, and, and then on there, so I had Shadinota written in, in Bengali, and then there was mushy peas, some garlic chutney representing the Bangladeshi flag. And then I'd done a mould of my fist, and, yeah. and then the food was put on top of it. And it's like an iconic fist of the independence in Bangladesh. So that was kind of representing that. And then the battered fish was put on top of it. And another thing that, with a Bangladeshis, they eat with their hands. Your mum feeds you with your hand, so it's like food being fed from your hand on this on this mould that was sticking out of this canvas. And then there was shoestring potatoes I'd done as the chips to represent the bundles of hay. And then there was the curry sauce. And then I had this like garlic sriracha sauce splattered across the canvas, showing the blood that was spilled by our ancestors to for the independence. And then on the corner I had like this little wireless speaker that was playing like as I went to present the dish, it was playing this really famous speech that all kids from a young age grew up and you know young kids of Bangladesh knew this speech like off by heart everyone knows it and I'd heard it for the first time three weeks ago yeah. while I was constructing a dish and it meant so much to me after my trip that I really understood what people had gone through and the struggles only because I'd visited Bangladesh I'd heard a lot about it like even my mum said at the time of the war like she used to like carry my sister from one end to the other their village was being bombed and mum told me all these things when we were as we were growing up but it's only when I went to Bangladesh and like with mum and dad gone now, these things really hit me. And, and then when I knew that, and then I heard this speech of the president and how we've spilled our blood, we're going to spill more blood, but whatever happens, we're going to get independence. It really like connected with me on an emotional level that I would never have imagined. And so try and get that on my plate of food, like all these feelings and everything, it, it, was, it was crazy. But when I presented it, like as I said it, and I was talking about mum, like I started crying and it got quite emotional. One of the judges had tears in it, and then like the whole place had become the feeling was just completely different it was no longer a competition it was just like the fact that we we're so proud that you know Bangladesh like what they'd done and everything it brought out a sense of patriotism that I didn't know I had in me for Bangladesh it was always like come on England but now I'm a bit like come on Bangladesh there was like a cricket match going on Bangladesh absolutely battered England and normally I'd be like oh, England lost but I was like I was in Bangladesh I was like I might as well cheer for Bangladesh as they won yeah, I've got, like, love, love from both ends. You know, the British family actually really comes through, so... And their plan is to make that winning dish available at the Taj Tandoori. You know, when it comes to service, it gets a bit busy in here, so I've got to do it in a way that I can get it out. So maybe the mould and the wireless speaker might not be there, but essentially the entire dish is coming on the new summer menu, yes. It's one to look out for, definitely. <laughs> Finally, I asked Jalal if there was anything particular on the menu that might entice a newcomer to try the Taj Tandoori. No, 100%. I mean, you have to come and try our fusion dishes. I mean, there's so much, and there's some starters that we do that you're not going to find anywhere else, like this popcorn dal or the nargasi kebab, which is like an Indian scotch egg. You know, there's lots of cool dishes that you'll probably never have tried. And if you're a bit unsure of what to order also, we've got this fantastic host who's my brother, Amin Saeed. Just ask for that guy, and I'm sure he will he'll give you some of the best recommendations you'll ever get in any Indian restaurant, and you will not regret. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jalal, thanks very much. Nah, it's been thanks. great to chat to you. Thank you, mate. Uh, congratulations on your success as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, mate. <laughs> Many thanks to Jalal. One extra thing to mention is that there's no alcohol served at the Taj Tandoori. Jalal made this decision for religious reasons to not profit through the sale of alcohol. He said for him it just simply didn't make sense being a practicing Muslim and selling alcohol. Instead, he made the Tandoori a BYO, bring your own. So, you can bring your own beer or wine, there's no corkage fee for small parties, and you save on the massive markup prices that would normally be placed on wine and beer in a restaurant. Pretty good decision, perhaps. Yeah, well, actually, talking about markups, there is one restaurant, and unfortunately, I've forgotten where it is. It's in London, I've forgotten which it is. Mm. And I was just looking at their wine menu, and I realised that their markup on a bottle of wine was eightfold. 
So wow. if you buy a bottle of wine in that restaurant, it would be £64. But if mm. you bought it in the shop, it would be £8. That's scary. Uh, well, I don't think there's many as big as that, but three or four is much more typical. Oh, yes. But you do have to, you do have to watch it. It puts you I, off your wine, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it also explains why in a restaurant you seem to be spending a great deal of money on wine, and it's not that good, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. Coming up after the break, we take a trip back in time to a Cambridge pub in the 1500s, discuss good charcoal for barbecues and bring you lots of food news and jobs too. See you in two. On this week's Cam's Politics, the parties compete for your vote in the City Council election. You'll hear directly from Alex Collis for Labour, Tim Bick for the Lib Dems, Naomi Bennett for the Greens and Zachary Marsh for the Conservatives. What can they promise to do to make your life better? We'll also hear the latest from the campaign in East Cam's and we'll have our political analyst and commentator Phil Rogers on hand to make sense of it all. I'm Trevor Dan. Join me for Cam's Politics at 12 noon this Sunday or wherever you get your podcasts. Suicide can be prevented, and we can all play our part. One question can save a life. One friend in particular who has been really supportive and been trying to keep me going and keep making contact and keep making me talk and trying to keep me going, realised something was wrong and was trying to contact me. Asking about suicide won't prompt someone to kill themselves. In fact, it will probably help. If you're worried about someone... Would you ask directly about suicide? I kind of got to the point, because of all the support that she'd given me, and I could see that, you know, she was desperately trying to get hold of me on my phone, that I did eventually answer her call. Learn how to have a life-saving conversation at stopsuicidepledge.org. Make the pledge and sign up for a Stop Suicide training workshop. I'd ask, would you? Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. Cambridge 105 Radio. And welcome back to Flavour and time for some more news now. The Cambridge Beer Festival is running from the 22nd to the 27th of May with more than 180 real ales and more than 80 ciders and perries. There are free midday sessions from 12 till 3 on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. There's a small entry fee for the evenings and for all day on Saturday. That is unless you're a member of the Campaign for Real Ale, in which case all sessions are free. As usual, it's on Jesus Green and there is food available. And in related news, there's good news from the Radigand in King Street. The renovation work is almost at an end and they're hoping to open in time for the Cambridge Beer Festival. We've visited the Radigand a couple of times during its fixing up. Here's a clip featuring Yvonne Seth who took time out from painting, hammering and clearing to talk to us. It's an odd-shaped building. It looks like it's just been wedged in this space. Like yeah. There was a space and someone's built a building to fit the space. Was there a tweet from you saying this was Cambridge's smallest pub, technically? Apparently, yes. I haven't verified that, but that was one of the things that always marketed itself on, the smallest pub in Cambridge. There are some other small pubs, like uh, the Live and Let Live, but I think floor space-wise, this probably has a little bit less than the Live. That's why we're trying to do our best to open up the space. That was like this website called the National Newspaper Archive, I think it is, and they've got a really good history of Cambridge newspapers scanned going back into the 1800s. Yeah. The main traceable thing is licensing changes were always in the newspaper, so anything to do with the licensee here on this whole corner, because the pub kind of changed around. It was originally the Garrick Head or the Garrick Inn, and then it kind of got chopped and changed, and the licence got moved from... King Street to Jesus Lane and then back again and eventually there was a change of name to the Radigant. I can't remember the date of that but that was late 1800s. When we originally saw the place it was before March 2020, before, yes. before Covid was a word that people would have recognised. We didn't actually sign the lease till October 2020. Oh, so we already knew then we were into this thing but yeah. we were obviously it was an evolving thing so we didn't know what Covid was going to be even then. So we were, the, the government was telling us it's only going to be over by Christmas. 
we're talking Christmas 2020. Obviously, it was not over by Christmas 2020. Mm. Um, it wasn't over by Christmas 2021. It isn't really over now. And we built up to more normal trading in November 2021. And then Omicron came along and everything went downhill again, even though there were no lockdowns. Just found a sign sitting on one of his boxes. Saloon bar in old brass, thick, heavy old brass. He must have saved that from, uh, from the previous pub iteration. There's other little bits just lying around here. Looks like he saved some bricks. And there's a 129. That must be the number of this place. 129 King Street. Well, from the, from the old to the new, on the 28th and the 29th of April, it's the Eddington Beer Garden. There'll be plenty to eat and drink with food trucks, including on Friday from 4pm, apple and jalapeno and pizza my heart. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> and on Saturday from noon, pig cassos and my Mexican. There'll be lots of live music too. It's free to attend and it takes place in Eddington Square. The Wine Rooms in Hills Road has six new sharing boards to enjoy your wine with. There's a Spanish, an Italian, a French, an English, a seafood and a vegan sharing board. And Amphora in Devonshire Road has a dinner created by the foraging chef. On the 30th of April, the cost is £105. On Thursday at Meadows in Mill Road, there is a chocolate exploration. This is from 6.30 till 8pm with tastings, recipes and hot chocolate. It's hosted by Anissa of Anissa and Chocolate and Ria of Bumble and Oak. And they'll be explaining the roasting process, talking about the farms and talking about the fermentation too. The cost for this is £20. Tickets are available on the Eventbrite website and the event is called Expert Edit Chocolate Tasting. Also at Meadows in Mill Road on the 19th of May, Liz Young's The Modern Table presents sharing plates with a spring and summer selection of wine from Meadows. Spring Farm in Bottisham has a three-course lunch on the 29th of April from 1.30 to 4.30. It takes place in the Goat Farm inside its 17th century barn. The starter and mains are new ways of eating goat. There's a goat ragu, a West African goat stew and a goat kleftico. Small plates for the under 10s are free, but you need to give the farm advance warning. More details on the Eventbrite website under the heading Farm to Table Lunch Pop-Up. Provenance and Brewboard have a spring festival on the 5th of May in Willingham at Provenance's new Orchard Barn. There'll be craft beers, wines, cocktails, DJs and wood-fired food. Tickets are on Brewboard's social media pages. There's a food hall opening soon in Market Street. It will include Butch Annie's, Solo, handmade pasta, Red Top, Detroit Pizzas and Nat's Bar with cocktails, beers and wines. And f food halls are quite a popular thing. Uh, the first one I went to was in Lisbon, which was absolutely fantastic. The central area with lots of tables surrounded by different kitchens and you go to whichever kitchen you want your food to come from. Clever. In fact, there are, there's a lot in British cities. There's three in Liverpool, for example. But this mm -hmm. one will be, I think, rather smaller because there aren't any big spaces in Cambridge available, I don't no. think. Oh. First for Cambridge. Yeah. Well, the barbecue season is more or less with us now. And in his book, The Big Green Egg, Tim Hayward talks about the vital importance of using good charcoal. Alan asked him about it. You're quite particular, I think, about the, the charcoal that, that you use. It's all very well having a piece of expensive kit, but you need to have <laughs> decent charcoal in it. And you say, if you buy charcoal... That's poached in paraffin soaked bags or impregnated with accelerants to make it easy to light, then you deserve sausages that taste like a burnt out car. Yes, <laughs> I believe this to be fundamentally <laughs> true. <laughs> um, seriously, I think um, the, the charcoal industry has got some problems, actually. Um, and also, we are quite close to having laws that are going to stop us burning charcoal. Uh, because it gets particulates into the air. Um, s proper charcoal roasting, because what you, you make charcoal by cutting down the right sort of trees, stacking them up, and lighting them in such a way that no oxygen gets to them. And it cooks out, but it doesn't burn. So that bla that bla that's blackened roasted wood, out of which all the nasty stuff is cooked, uh, and then you can use it. It's a very, very clean product. Uh, but it's also very expensive and very labour-intensive. So... 
a lot of companies will buy the, the, the gravel and grit at the end and compress it together into briquettes, which are held together with a kind of flammable glue. And you chuck that in the oven and it makes more particulates, more dust, more gunge, uh, and doesn't taste very good. And if you have one that self-lights, it's horrible because it just tastes and smells of gasoline. Um, so, so, no, it, it is worth using good quality charcoal. I mean, I've, I've had some absurd stuff. There's a Japanese charcoal called Bincho, which I can get, I think, at wholesale prices for about a five or a stick. And a stick is about the length of a, a reasonable sized sausage roll. Um, but that's charcoal so good that you heat it up, you put it on the table on a plate and people hold their Wagyu steak against it with a pair of tweezers. So that's like really, really clean, beautiful, high-burning charcoal. Uh, but it, it is, it's something that re requires some thinking about, and certainly look for sustainability tags on the, on the bag. Uh, you want to be making sure you're getting the good stuff. You can hear the full interview with Tim Hayward on our podcast of the 11th of March. It's there right now on the Cambridge 105 Radio website or wherever your podcasts spring from. <laughs> Well, time for some wine news. And the Cambridge Wine Fair on the 21st of May is building into a big event. The people from Noah Young Wines will be there, as will James Thorne from Thorne Wines, Matt Hodgson from Great Britannia, Hal Wilson from Cambridge Wine Merchants, Chong Chong Bo of Amphora, Andrew Wilcox from Adams in Southwold, Andrew Walker from Solaris Wines in St Neots and others too. It's at the Clayton Hotel in Station Road and there'll be more than 100 wines to taste. Entry is 35 for one or £60 for two people and the Cambridge Wine School is organising it. Steve Hovington of the Cambridge Wine Academy is hosting a tasting of new world wines at Cambridge Wine Merchants Cherry Hinton Road Branch. It's on the 3rd of May at 7pm and costs £30 a ticket. There'll be eight wines to taste, plus bread, cheese and cold meats. And you book on the Cambridge Wine Merchants website. At Amphora, on the 10th of May, there is a tasting of Sauvignon Blanc. And on the 17th of May, wines from Old Vines. Booking details are available on the Amphora website. And the Wine Rooms in Hills Road has a tasting of dry Riesling from different regions on the 4th of May. On the 18th of May, wines from Spain. And on the 25th of May, wines from the left bank of Bordeaux. And that's all our news for today. Uh, for our last feature, we've reached back into the Flavour archives where Matt learned what food and drink you could expect in a Cambridge pub in the 16th century. Thomas Hobson was an important man in Cambridge around the time of the Spanish Armada's attempted invasion. He was a philanthropist, a horsemonger, with horses available for rent at six pennies a day. He owned an inn and a pub where the King Street Run now stands. Cue the special shimmering effect as we travel back in time 435 years. <laughs> Good afternoon, sir. Oh, good day to you. Good day. What's your pleasure here in our inn today? Well, I was just coming through Cambridge and I, I'm in need of a hearty meal and some good ale. And I'm just wondering what you're serving here at this house. Well, we have a choice of drinks, depending on how much coin you have in your pocket. We have small beer to slake your thirst. But if you're after a stronger draught, we have a good table beer, twice the strength. Or, for a few pennies more, we have Rhenish wine, which is a white wine, which has some spices in to add to the flavour. And we also have claret blended to give a good pleasing flavour, a good strong wine from the area of Bordeaux in France. What would you be your pleasure, wine or beer? A beer on this occasion. Right. John, we have a quart of beer. And food, you say? Yes. You fancy a hearty meal? Very hearty, please. Well, my wife Anne has been supervising the kitchen maids and we have meat roasting before the fire. We have some capons and we have... Oh, we do have some mutton. Do we have the mutton left, Anne? We do. There is plenty of mutton. And we also have a pottage, which is, in terms of the most heartiness you can have for the least pennies, a pottage is the meal that you may want. So in the pottage there are some oats, turnips, lots of peas, of course, and some mutton, because it's a mutton pottage. Good hearty meal which you can have with some bread. But tell me, how deep is your purse? If your purse is deep, 
you can have the finest white mancha bread. But if your purse is shallower, we have a coarser brown bread for you, which you can have for less than half the price. So what's your pocket then, deep or shallow? Well, I'm going to go for deep because I'm quite intrigued by the finest white manchet bread and what comprises that. Right. Well, bread, as you know, is made from mostly wheat flour, the ordinary table bread that we have. The wheat grains have a core of brown, brown bran, and a whiter husk around it. If you just grind the grain up and make bread out of that, you will get a brown coarser loaf. But if you want a finer bread, which will accompany the finer foods, the finer roasted meats and march pains that a gentleman or a lady may want, what you have to do is crush the grain and then start sifting it to separate the white from the brown. And it's a long process and it takes time and so the cost increases. You also then have to bake it with more care because the bread, the flour is lighter, it will not take such a warm oven and needs to be baked for a shorter period. Now the ovens that we have, as you see, there's one bread oven there at the back of the fireplace. It's like a stone-lined dome. And you see there's a little fire burning in the corner of it. And you think, well, that's not very much warmth, but it's enough. It keeps that bread oven at the right temperature all day, every day, all year round. So you can make your loaves of bread, whether from the brown flour for the ordinary folk or the lighter white flour for the ladies and gentlemen, and you place them in the oven and they will quickly rise and cook. But there is a division. The bread is going in the base of the oven and there will be ash on the base of each loaf. So if you're a lady or gentleman, of course, you will want the upper crust, which is ash-free, as opposed to the crust at the bottom, which may be slightly more burnt and may be covered in ash. What do you think this gentleman deserves then? I it's... think this gentleman is about to die of starvation, Thomas. We should seat him and we should bring him his food. That's a very... Yes, well, here's your beer. Well, so you what, what do you fancy then? Would you fancy roasted meats? Yes, yes. Yes, we'll have to give you some roasted capons and some roasted mutton. But of course they're rather heavy, so we need something light as well. So how about some, um, say, a light tart of some kind, say a, a cheese tart, mm -hmm. which is light, which is made of a, a curd cheese in a, in a pastry base with some herbs. That's a much lighter meal. Perhaps some fish. Perhaps, say, some um, soused herrings. So you take the herrings and you, you roll them up. You place them in vinegar with some spices, ideally some pepper. And that's a very, very piquant taste. And that balances with the more oily nature of the, the mutton and the capons. You can also have something quite herby. You could have some grains with some herbs in it. It's a very traditional meal that goes back several centuries. Frumity is one of the old names for it. You can have some of that for a very small price indeed. It's as cheap as anything. But we have something new for you. Very hearty, a new grain called lob lolly. Have you ever had loblolly before? I've never have. Well, loblolly is a, is a new grain that's also known as rice. So you make a pudding out of this rice, you add some milk to it and some um, nutmeg and some spices, and you make a pleasant, quite moist pudding out of it, and it goes very well with mutton indeed. So the 16th century meals was always about balance. That's right, yes. In terms of what most people had, the most people in England for most of history have ate the same thing which is a pottage. So you can go back to even the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and people are eating a pottage, and that hasn't changed. And the more wealth you have, the more variety you have in your diet and the greater amount of meat. But the 16th century Tudor era was a time when people were obsessed with a balance, just as people in the modern era are obsessed with different kinds of diets. F-plan diets, G-plan diets, or whatever the, the latest thing is, separating proteins from starches or whatever fat it is. At that time, they wanted to make sure their humours were balanced. So never too much of one thing or the other. But there was also a difference between the genders. Balance of humours was different in men than women. Men were slightly hotter and drier than women, who were cooler and wetter. Men were more rational, women were more irrational. And so it was thought not to be good for women or children to have anything that was too spicy, too dry, too hot. So, for example, ginger cakes, wonderful things. Women would only be allowed a small amount of those, or pepper cakes. Ginger cakes are a really simple recipe that everybody can make. What you do is you take some breadcrumbs, grind them up in a pestle and mortar, add some ginger, grind that up, add some sugar or honey. If you have some other spices, such as nutmeg or cloves, grind those in as well, and keep banging away with your pestle in your mortar until you've got a really smooth paste. Then take your moulds. You need gingerbread moulds for this. They're made in many interesting shapes in Tudor England, in the shapes of people or animals, carved out of a good hard wood. Dust the inside of the moulds with ground spices as a releasing agent. 
press the gingerbread paste into the mould, get it nice and flat, filling all the crevices, and then turn the gingerbreads out onto a parchment and dry them before the fire. You don't need to cook them, you don't need to put them in the oven, because of course it's made of bread which is already cooked. You just dry them, let them get nice and firm and hard, and if you have got more wealth than the Queen, then you can even put gilding on them. And that's a very good way to display your wealth by having food that's covered in gold. Thank you very much, Thomas Hobson. You are a vat of historical knowledge. Well, if you're running an inn, the one thing you have is plenty of vats. Isn't that right, Anne? Indeed, it is. <laughs> Many thanks to historian and actor Matthew Ward, who was portraying Thomas Hobson at the Museum of Cambridge. Roasted capons and mutton, a pastry-based curd cheese, not a single toilet in the entire city, and moles paused to prevent rheumatism. 1588 lifestyles and beliefs. I'm certainly glad to be alive and well here in 2023. And there's the music signalling time for news from social media. Yes, Finn Boys are saying that their fresh fish is available at the Gog Magog farm shop today and the selection is of Pollock, mussels, prawns and lockjewart salmon along with tarama salata and fish soup. And if you haven't had the Finn Boys tarama salata, you're missing a treat because it is absolutely fantastic. Ooh, I love tarama yes, salata. Flourish Farm Shop has a new product in its range. Uh, it's a Thai curry paste from London, from Paste in London, and uh, it's very highly regarded. Congratulations, this is one, an escapee from Congratulations Corner. Congratulations to Steak and Honour officially listed as a local gem in the 2023 Good Food Guide, and I'm not surprised. Very good. Excellent. Green Onions signalling the start of our job section and Maurizio Dining in Mill Road is looking for a junior chef, a recent apprentice or somebody with a minimum of six months experience. There will be between three and six evenings a week but not Sunday work. The position involves pizza and pasta dishes and general kitchen duties. If you're interested you can contact them via email info at mauriziodining.com Market House has a vacancy for a sous chef with experience of producing high quality dishes. To apply or to get more information, email Bill Brogan on inquiry at markethouse.co.uk. Some jobs in brief now. Uh, contact the company via its website or just pop in during a quiet time for a chat. Chef de partie are needed at Clare College, The Orator, Midsummer House, and MJP at The Shepherds. Scott's All Day has a vacancy for a sous chef. Chefs at all levels are needed at Pint Shop. A senior chef is needed at Hot Numbers and a head chef at the Courtyard Kitchen in the Fitzwilliam Museum. And the Granter has a vacancy for a chef, as does a... And finally, the Mitre needs a part-time chef and an immediate start is offered. All of which brings us to the end of today's programme. Don't forget you can catch Flavour on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon. We're repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. Flavour will also be available as a podcast early next week. Uh, coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1 o'clock is the Gadget Guide with Rob and Lawrence. There must be an awful lot of gadgets, wasn't there? They never, they never, they never end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I love it. Oh, do you? Right. <laughs> I, do okay. I don't think I've got any gadgets. Uh, at two p.m. it's two Sue Marchant's selection, but that's all from us. We're taking a break for the next episode, so there's no program on the sixth of May. But we will be back on the twentieth of May with lots more food and drink news, jobs, and features. So until then, goodbye. goodbye. Bye.